On social media, the Watts family seemed perfect. Facebook showed images and videos of a handsome husband, his pretty wife, and their two adorable young daughters. They were a seemingly wholesome family that looked like they came straight out of a catalog, clad in color-coordinated outfits with beaming smiles. No one in the small, close-knit Colorado town who knew them could have ever imagined, in their worst nightmares, the tragic fate that lie ahead. Soon, this picture-perfect family would be ripped to shreds. Shannon Watts, pregnant with Chris's third child, and her two daughters, four-year-old Bella and three-year-old Celeste, would go missing and ultimately be found brutally murdered. It was a case that shocked America with its tragedy and, more than that, its evil. And what seemed to be a case of a missing mom took a very dark turn right from the start. Chris Watts gave a chilling news interview when his pregnant wife and two daughters first disappeared. He stood on his front porch, stone-faced and timid, asking for the return of his missing family. And I have to tell you, when I sat and watched that for the first time, something seemed immediately off with Chris's demeanor. It wasn't just that he didn't plead for people to find them. I just didn't feel like he had the right tone, the right demeanor, the right countenance of a devastated man who was desperate to find his wife and his little girls. I soon discovered that's because he wasn't desperate at all. He wasn't desperate because he already knew where they were. Police soon discovered that Patriarch Chris Watts was the one who made his family disappear. He was the one who violently ended the lives of his innocent pregnant wife and their two daughters. It's a case that one year later continues to mystify and stun the nation. How and why did a father murder his own family, ending their lives with his bare hands? What drove him? A man who on the outside seemed pleasant, normal, to commit such a monstrous act. Not since Scott Peterson, who was convicted of killing his pregnant wife, Lacey, has a case struck such a chord with the American people. The saying goes, the devil will come as everything you ever wish for. When Shannon Watts first met her future husband, Chris, she told friends she felt like she had met her Prince Charming. But the man who once swept Shannon off her feet would be the same man who would end her life and the lives of her children. Twisting Shannon's fairy tale into one of the darkest nightmares of our generation. In this episode, we'll dive into this story from the beginning, starting with the disappearance of Shannon and her daughters. But this isn't a typical mystery. This isn't a case of who did it. We already know who did it. This is a case of why they did it. Why did this all-American husband and father, a guy who seemed like your average nice guy, do the unthinkable? This wasn't someone that just snapped one day and did something on impulse. No, no. This was much more evil. When a crime like this occurs, people always ask me, Dr. Phil, who does this kind of thing? 
And when they ask me, it is not a rhetorical question. I know that because they then pause with a quizzical look on their face, waiting for an answer. They want the answer because they want to know how to spot these kind of people. They want to know what to look for. They want to know how they could have missed this. Is there someone in their life that they're missing? In the coming episodes, we'll analyze what was really going on in the Watts marriage, and more importantly, in Chris's demented and twisted mind. We'll go deep inside the mind of a murderer whose victims were his own flesh and blood, and what he did to those children as they looked him in his eyes and called him daddy is unthinkable. The man that was supposed to protect them, cherish them, keep them safe. What circumstances, what personality traits turned Chris from a seemingly normal Colorado father into one of the most infamous killers we're likely to hear about in our lifetime? The harsh truth was that Chris was anything but a nice guy. Hiding behind the good-looking face was a secret life and secret thoughts, and the two combined created a slow, steady burn that would lead Chris to murder. This is... The Devil Beside Me, The Chris Watts Story, Husband, Father, Killer. As I navigate around my new studio here in Texas, I like to be prepared for anything like unexpected interviews outside in the rain. That's why my Vessies are my absolute favorite go-to shoes. They keep my feet snug, dry, and stylish. My Bessie Stormburst fits my professional vibe, ensuring style and comfort in any weather condition. Transform your everyday routine into an adventure with Bessie's Stormburst. Comfortable, stylish, and waterproof. Not water-resistant. Big difference. Bessie's lineup, Stormburst, the everyday classic, and Chelsea offers unparalleled comfort for all-day wear. Embrace every moment come rain or shine with Bessie. Head over to Bessie.com slash mystery to explore our versatile collection and claim your 15% discount on your first order. Visit Bessie.com slash mystery for footwear that will gear you up for the whole year round and get 15% off your first order. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Bravo Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. Shannon and Chris Watts lived in Frederick, Colorado the kind of town where most everyone is on a first-name basis and the most exciting thing that usually happens is a county fair. It's a town tucked away in the beautiful Colorado mountains, the perfect place to raise a family. It's a safe place where not much happens, or so everyone thought. People who knew Shannon gravitated towards her. She was bubbly, pretty brunette, who loved sharing updates about her life on social media. Facebook was where her love story would begin with her future husband, Chris Watts. With one simple friend request from a handsome stranger, 
Shannon's life would be forever changed. Shannon's fate would be sealed. Shannon had struggled for years with lupus, and the crippling disease had kept her from living her life to the fullest. So when Chris Watts, a good-looking guy, requested Shannon's friendship on Facebook, she was intrigued. And when that friend request led to an amazing date and a whirlwind romance, she was thrilled. She even said in one of her Facebook videos that Chris was the best thing, the best thing that had ever happened to her. He just checked off all the boxes. He was handsome, tall, sweet. He was soft-spoken. He had a good job. He was a field coordinator at a local oil company. On paper, it was easy to see why Shannon was so drawn to Chris. And of course, Chris was taken with Shannon's beauty and zest for life. I mean, this seemed like a match made in heaven, and the pair quickly fell in love. Friends and family say the two complemented each other perfectly. As the saying goes, opposites attract. Shannon could light up a room with her smile and upbeat energy. Meanwhile, Chris, well, he was more reserved, content to let Shannon take the spotlight. In the numerous Facebook videos Shannon posted, she animatedly talked to her followers, wanting to share almost every detail of her life, from her beauty regimen to her daily outings. Her videos show Chris playing with her little girls, Shannon and Chris on their way to vacation, the simple goings-on of what seemed like a happy suburban family living in a small western town. Shannon always seemed so happy online, a woman content with her life and eager to share it. Chris's cameos on her social media showed a nice husband, but one who seemed, well, more comfortable being behind the scenes than center stage. He's kind, but, well, really a little standoffish. And yet, by all accounts, this truly was a good fit. Shannon's mother and father, Frank and Sandra, were impressed with a young man who seemed so in love with their daughter. Shannon's mother even once remarked that Chris must have been sent to Shannon from heaven above. After two years of courtship, Chris and Shannon were married. People who knew them say that in the early stages of their relationship, Chris doted on Shannon. He wanted to make her happy. The couple would go on to have two beautiful children, Bella and Celeste. Then Shannon got pregnant with their third child, the boy they had always wanted. Yes, Shannon and Chris seemed to have it all. They were the perfect couple. They had perfect children. They had the perfect suburban house. But we now know it was a facade, a facade that was about to come crashing down. Because on August 13th, 2018, just over one year ago, Shannon was 15 weeks pregnant with a boy, a boy the couple planned on naming Nico. Shannon had returned to the family home late the night before, exhausted from a business trip. August 13th, truly, the 13th was unlucky, because this was the day that everything would change. While it was a day that started much like any other in this Denver suburb, there were immediately clues that something was amiss with Shannon Watts. She was offline, unavailable. She didn't call or text anyone, and she was unresponsive to numerous calls and messages, it was completely out of character. This was a woman who interacted with her friends and family every single day. She lived her life on social media. 
Her marketing job depended on it. When she didn't hear from Shannon that morning, her good friend and co-worker Nicole knew almost immediately something had to be very wrong. This just was not like her friend. After some time had passed and Nicole still received no word from Shannon, she decided she was going to go check on her in person. On the drive over, Nicole tried to convince herself that she was just imagining things. She had just been with Shannon. They went on a work trip to Arizona together. They had flown home to Colorado together only just the night before. I mean, what could happen in that short of a period of time? Shannon was pregnant after all. It wasn't like she would go off on a lark. She was probably just catching up on some much-needed sleep, or maybe she was feeling under the weather. Still, they spoke every day, and not hearing from her just did not make sense. It was out of pattern. And while she tried to make it okay in her mind, something in her heart was troubled. She just knew instinctively this was not right. The Watts house looked just as it always did as Nicole pulled up. It was a multi-level brown house, identical to the other cookie-cutter houses that lined the friendly neighborhood street. The house that was usually filled with the sound of little girls' excited voices was quiet. The lights were off. Nicole rapped at the door. No answer. It's okay, she thought. I'll use the key code Shannon gave me to get in. After punching in the code, Nicole discovered the latch was on. The house was locked from the inside. She felt a pit in her stomach. Nicole decided to call Chris to see if he knew anything about his wife's whereabouts. According to her, Chris was nonchalant. He seemed unconcerned. She's on a play date, he told Nicole. But to Nicole... This immediately did not add up. Shannon's car was in the garage and the house was locked from the inside. Not only that, Shannon would never have taken her little girls anywhere without their car seats. Yet when she peered into the garage, there they were, strapped inside the back seat of Shannon's car. Now, Chris might not have seemed to be worried, but Nicole says she knew in her bones something was wrong. She decided to take matters into her own hands and play detective. She knew Shannon had an appointment with her OBGYN. They had just talked about it. She knew Shannon was excited about getting to hear her baby's heartbeat. There was no way she's going to miss that appointment. Nicole went back to her car and drove directly to the doctor's office where Shannon was supposed to have had her appointment. But she was a no show. Now Nicole knew without a doubt in the world something terrible had happened to her friend. I mean, think about it. Everything is out of whack. Everything's out of pattern. Radio silence on the phone. Radio silence on social media where Shannon lived. She enters the code. The house is locked from the inside. Play date? Then why is her car in the garage? Why are the children's car seats still there? Important doctor's appointment? No show? Come on. Nicole felt enough was enough. Even though Chris seemed unbothered, she knew Shannon was in trouble. At 1.40 p.m. on the afternoon of August 13, 2018, 
Nicole said enough is enough and too much is too much. She picked up the phone and called police. My name's Nicole, and I'm calling because I'm concerned about um, a friend of mine. She won't answer the door. She won't answer phone calls. She won't answer text messages. I mean, there's no movement in the house whatsoever. While Shannon's friends were growing increasingly worried, Chris, yeah, he was just still at work. He called Shannon's other friend, Cassie, to get an update. Cassie was frantic with worry and fear. She told Chris Nicole had called the police and told Chris to go home immediately. But still, he didn't seem concerned. His pregnant wife and children have suddenly vanished into thin air. Didn't seem to bother him. Now look, when people go into shock, they behave in very unusual ways. But there is that transition from normal functioning to shock. There is a watershed event, something where you can say they were one way before and a different way after. That did not happen here. He was the same way before and the same way after he got this information. There was no watershed event. There was no shocking event that put him into an altered state of consciousness. Now, we know now, today, he was not in shock. But you certainly can't explain it away, and you couldn't at the time. And when I saw all of this happening, when I read about this, when I looked at the media coverage in the beginning, I'm thinking, this doesn't add up at all because he wasn't the least bit concerned. If somebody calls me and says, hey, I can't get a hold of your wife. She is way out of pattern. House is locked, car's there, car seats are there, she's gone, kids are gone. I'm going to at least pick up the phone and call and say, hey, what's up? Everything okay? Where are you? Didn't happen. There was no shock here. And that's the problem with a sociopath. That's a problem with a psychopathic personality. They don't even know how to mimic empathy. They don't know how others would react in a similar situation, so they don't even know how to mimic it. They don't have that feeling. Remember I said he didn't like the spotlight? He seemed a little standoffish. He didn't know how to engage. And when he gets in a situation where a reasonable person in the same or similar circumstances would behave A, B, and C, He doesn't know how to mimic that because he doesn't feel A, B, and C. He can't even fake it till he makes it. But her friends sure know how. Like Nicole, Cassie was frustrated with Chris's reaction. She claimed she told him off on the phone. Just told him off. What's wrong with you? Chris did all he knew how to do. Hey, nothing's wrong. Shannon's friends were blowing things out of proportion. He just said, come on, calm down. He didn't want the police involved. He told Cassie as much in a text message. Too late, a cop was already on his way to the Watts residence. Officer Scott Coonrod arrived at the Watts house to meet Nicole. Like Nicole had done hours earlier, Officer Coonrod peered inside. Lights were out and there was no sign of Shannon, no sign of her daughters Bella or Celeste, and no sign of Chris Watts. Now, remember, the police had been called at 1.40. Chris had already been notified before that. She had reached out, and he had just said play date. 
So by now, he has known for hours that she's gone off the radar and still no reaction whatsoever. None. After the officer had finished searching the back porch and perimeter of the home for signs of the family, Chris finally pulls up in his gray truck. He gets out, seems completely at ease. He was athletic, dressed in jeans and a long-sleeved T-shirt, sunglasses perched on top of his head. I mean, he's just Joe Cool, typical work outfit. Seemed like he didn't have a care in the world. Now, if any man I know received a phone call from a police officer concerned about the well-being of his pregnant wife and children, and this is the fourth or fifth call he's gotten that day, you would think he would rush home as soon as possible and come into that driveway in a four-wheel slide. But not Chris. His voice was monotone. He was casual. It seemed obvious to observers that Chris just was not that concerned. Even with a police officer standing in his home with his family now missing for hours, he just seemed unfazed. Again, he doesn't even know how to mimic concern. He is that cold-blooded. He told the officer Shannon had told him that morning before he left for work that she had planned on taking the girls on a play date at a friend's house. Then he said... She never responded to his text. Together, Chris, Officer Coonrod, and Shannon's friend Nicole began searching the Watts' home immediately. It seemed like life had been put on pause inside the Watts' residence. Only the family's barking dog cut through the house's eerie silence. During the search, Chris exhibited more curious behavior. He didn't call out to his family to see if there was some small chance they were somewhere inside. He didn't seem eager to offer up clues to police. Instead of making frantic phone calls to family and friends, Chris casually texted on his cell phone. His behavior was suspicious right off the bat. Even as the police officer questioned Chris, body cam footage showed Chris answering the officer's questions then promptly returning his attention to his phone. How long have you guys been married? So, been together right here, married six this year. Yeah. And this is very unusual behavior. <laughs> What's this door right here go to? It's locked. Do you have a key for it? Yeah, here and just play with that. So you normally keep it locked? Yeah, because they, yeah. They would go in there, they'd be in soap. Like last time we had Vaseline everywhere. You know, so that was not fun. So does she normally make the beds, the kids' beds? No, no. Did you tell your mother-in-law that she went to a friend's this today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's what friend? Who was she supposed to go to? That's all she told me. Said to go to a friend's house and take kids. When did she tell you that? This morning when we talked about I'm gonna try to run some things down using her phone and then see if we can't find somebody. Um, if nobody's heard anything at all, then uh, they'll probably pull the trigger a little bit further. Okay. Go down the route, so. Now, at one point, Chris even admitted he was separated from Shan but said the separation was civil, nervously laughing afterwards. He had a lot of what are called tells, micro-expressions, 
things that when they occur in clusters indicate bald-faced lying, like smiling, rocking back and forth, which is an attempt to self-soothe. It was obvious Chris was hiding things from the police. Now, from my years of interviews and experience with everyone from suspects and those who have been found guilty, there are things people do subconsciously that give away that they're lying. I've got to tell you, Chris was the poster boy for these giveaways. I've been doing this a long time, and you see certain characteristics and traits in people. First off, he's laughing. He's saying, yeah, I don't know. He's giving vague answers. He's deflecting. He says the separation is civil, but then he's kind of laughing afterwards. That's called duping delight. I'm going to dupe you. I'm going to tell you something, and I'm taking such pleasure in it, I just can't hide my glee. He never refers to his family in any personal or intimate way. He doesn't use their names. It's called distancing. He uses pronouns like they and those kids. He wants to be impersonal and distance himself from them. He only says their names one time. He says Shannon, and he says Bella once. And when he says Bella, he talks about her in the past tense like she's already dead. When you look at him, he's in a closed body position. His arms are closed. They're closed across his body, folded up to protect himself, to put up a barrier. As I said, he's rocking back and forth. And there is an absence of emotion, an absence of concern. Everything about him is inappropriate. When he was asked about the play date, he says, I, you know, she's at a friend's. What friend? I, I don't know. Just at a friend's house. I don't know. Everything is vague. You add this to the fact that 95% of the time, it's the spouse. And in this particular case, you've got the spouse exhibiting very deceptive behaviors. Bells are going off with me as I'm watching all of this. And as the house search continues, there are telltale signs that things were askew. Shannon was a perfectionist. The house was usually very tidy. I mean, it's just her personality. Today, all the beds are rumpled and unmade. Sheets were missing from the master bedroom. One sheet was found in the garbage. Now, think about that. This is a woman that's buttoned up. She takes great pride in having everything in order. But on this day, the beds are rumpled and unmade, and there's a sheet in the garbage. You have to start asking yourself why. On the other hand, the most foreboding clues for Officer Coonrod and Nicole was finding Shannon's cell phone person wedding ring inside the house. What woman would leave the house and leave those things behind? None that I know of. Even Chris told the officer that Shannon's cell phone was her lifeline. She used it to work from home and was never without it. Had Chris's entire family been abducted? Could Shannon have snapped and taken off with the children? I mean, he said they were separated, said it was civil. But would she take the children and leave the marital home, or would she expect him to get out and leave her and the children 
where they were safe and secure. It just didn't make any sense. Shannon didn't have enemies, and she would not have left the house with everything she needed if she would have left it at all. And from everything that is known about her and her mothering, she would not have uprooted those children and said, well, we're just going on the road. Without our car, without our car seats, without our phone, without our purse, without our money, we're just going to go on the road. Was she going to hitchhike? Immediately, Frederick police officers sprang into action. They soon found that the Watts neighbor, Nate, well, Nate had a security camera installed right on the front of his house. And the security footage on it would be the first of many dominoes to fall. And when they started to fall, they would fall right on top of Chris Watts. Chris was with officers and his neighbor when they watched the video surveillance. As Chris stood in front of the television, an officer's body cam captured his reaction. The security camera footage showed Shannon's car pulling into her garage a little before 2 a.m. in the early morning hours of August 13th. A few hours later, pre-dawn, Chris is shown backing his truck into the driveway up to the garage and driving off into the night. You can't see if he puts anything in the back of the truck, but it was suspicious that he backed into the garage so that if he put something inside, it was out of view. There was no footage of Shannon and the girls ever leaving the house that morning. The only person shown leaving the Watts home alive the morning of August 13th? Yeah, you guessed it. Chris Watts himself. And then we see Chris Watts' truck leaving the house. Was he in it alone? Or was somebody in it with him? Well, Chris's story was beginning to unravel, and he knew it. When he was watching that video, and you look at the body cam on the police officer, it's almost as though that was the moment that this malignant narcissist knew, "Uh uh-oh, this is coming unglued. He's standing there, he's got his hands over his head, in the most forlorn, oh my God, posture you can imagine. And he just turns around and walks away. At 517. That footage showed him reacting to this revelation in real time. He was sweaty, shifty putting his hands behind his head, trying to make up excuses as to why he would be loading his truck up at such an early hour. Both Chris's neighbor, Nate, and the police officer noticed the shift in Chris's demeanor. He had been caught red-handed. They discussed it with each other after Chris left the room. No. Right. 
be completely honest with you, my wife and I were kind of wondering when she was on vacation if something happened, because I've heard them pull out screaming at each other at the top of their lungs, and he gets crazy. Really? That's pretty recently? Yeah. Well, Weston, that's why she went and visited people, because she wanted to get away from the situation. At this point in the investigation, you have a guy who doesn't seem the least bit frantic. He's not crying. He's not yelling. He's not outraged at the fact that his family is nowhere to be found. Doesn't that seem incongruent with the circumstances? I mean, think about it. At this point, now now maybe earlier he can just maybe say, I'm dumber than a box of rock. I just haven't figured out that they're missing. But by now, friends are there, police are there. He supposedly called, text, whatever. By now, he's figured out they're missing. At this point, there is no reason that he would be anything other than concerned, anything other than panicked. He may be separated from his wife, and you could make the argument, hey, he's withdrawn his emotion from her but not those two little girls. When Chris stepped out of the room, Nate, the neighbor, told police about Chris. He just said straight up, he's not acting right. He then went on to tell the police more about how the Watts marriage was less than Rosie. He often heard Chris and Shannon arguing, sometimes screaming at the top of their lungs. Shannon had gone away for most of the summer to stay with her parents in North Carolina, which the Watts neighbor also thought was strange. It's now August 14th. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the FBI joined the Fredericks Police Force in an effort to locate Shannon. The case was now picked up by the national media, and the public was swept up by the mystery and the family's apple pie good looks. Theories spread like wildfire as the nation began to learn about the Watts family. A beautiful pregnant woman and her innocent children missing without a trace. Into thin air, a husband left to pick up the pieces hopeful for their return. Or so he would have you believe. The media couldn't help but compare Chris to Scott Peterson. And later you're going to hear some comparisons that are more than chilling. The two cases had a ton of similarities. Like Scott, Chris was a good-looking young guy in his early 30s. He didn't act how people would expect a grieving and worried husband and father to act. What would cause most men to go into full protective mode on a mission to save their family barely even triggered Scott or Chris. The only time they seemed moved was when they got caught in their own web of lies when puzzle pieces in their stories didn't add up. And again, you look at the profile of the psychopath or sociopath or antisocial personality, whatever label you want to put on it, given your place on the historical evolution of this personality type, the only time they do have emotion, the only time they do have remorse, is remorse at getting caught not remorse about what they did, disremorse at getting caught. Why? Well, because that's inconvenient. They don't like to get caught because it disrupts their plan. They're narcissists. It's all about them. How dare you 
inconvenience me by catching me in a lie. How dare you arrest me? How dare you put me in jail? That makes me sad. I don't like that. I have no feeling about the crime I committed. I just don't like you inconveniencing me with these charges, with this trial, (laughs) with this incarceration. I'm sorry I got caught. Now, against his mother-in-law's advice, Chris did decide to speak to the media, and it was this interview that sparked a firestorm of debate in the media and made Chris an overnight household name. In the court of public opinion, that interview was pretty damning. I am the media, and I can tell you it was pretty damning. Because when I looked at that, it was game over. Denver reporters interviewed Chris on his front porch. His pregnant wife and children had been missing for an entire day, and Chris stood on the porch with his arms folded stiffly across his chest, his good-looking face an almost blank slate. Again, as I said, this was his chance to show America that he was a husband out of his mind with worry, a husband who would do absolutely anything to get his wife and little girls back safe and sound. This was his chance. This is when you look at the camera, you look right down the pipe, right down the lens, and you hope the abductor is listening and looking, and you have a chance to speak to them, appeal to their compassion. And here's how he used that time. If she's vanished, like, I want her back so bad. I want those kids back so bad. I just want them people to know that I want my family back. Like, I want them safe, and I want them here. Like, this house is not the same. I mean, I, last night was traumatic. Last night was, I, I can't really stay in this house again, like, with nobody here. And last night, I wanted, I, I wanted that knock on the door. I wanted to see, the, I wanted to see those kids just running, running, just, just, barrel rush me and just give me a hug and knock me on the ground but that didn't happen well that interview was the beginning of the end for chris watts already a suspect for police it did not take a rocket scientist to think chris's interview was bizarre for starters his awkward stiff pose made him seem really closed off he swayed slightly back and forth Look, when people cross their arms, it's usually in an effort to protect themselves from others in social situations or to keep others at a distance, especially if they have a secret to keep. You know, there's what we call closed body position. There's what we call open body position. It's the difference between vulnerable and being closed off. And if you're really appealing to the human side of a kidnapper or an abductor or wanting to inspire and motivate the public, you want to connect with them emotionally. You want them to feel what you're feeling. Because if they stand in your shoes, they are moved to try and help you. People bond heart to heart, not head to head. So when you have that chance, when you look down the pipe, when you look right into that lens and you speak to people from the heart, you want a connection. So they'll get up off their couch, they'll go search the woods, they'll 
call the tip line. If it's the abductor, they'll say, you know, bad idea here. We need to just drop them off at a rest area somewhere and stop this before it gets any worse. I mean, those are your hopes. Those are your dreams. Chris had no tears. A man who everyone assumed must be in a living, breathing hell did not shed one tear. His voice never wavered. It didn't crack. It never seemed to convey any genuine emotion. No real plea for help. It was like he had practiced what he wanted to say, and he was just going through the motions. Let's check the boxes here. I'm expected to say, hey, she's missing. Help me find her. So, hey, she's missing. Help me find her. The interview, though brief, spoke volumes. Not only was Chris devoid of emotion, but he had a lot of slip-ups here. There were times when he referred to Shannon in the past tense, talking about the type of person she was, not is. When Chris talked about his daughter Bella and Celeste, he told personal anecdotes. He talked about the girls' Minnie Mouse cows, the shows they liked to watch how he had missed telling them to eat their dinner so they could get dessert, how he yearned to tuck them in again and turn on their rain sound machines to help them sleep. But through all of this, he never cried. He never really seemed to be in pain at not being able to do that. If he was trying to act the part of a devastated dad, well, he just wasn't doing a very convincing job. It sounded like he was saying the lines but there was no emotion behind them. Think about a song that you're hearing, but the music isn't right. It just didn't go together. He barely even referenced his wife and children by name. It was like, if I don't acknowledge them, if I don't embrace them, and I distance myself from them, then it's easier to hide my guilt It's like everybody will just kind of forget about it. But if I humanize them, then it's going to energize people to care more, and they're not going to let this go. As though he was hoping this would be a one-day story and people would move on. And six months later, they might say, hey, did anybody ever find that woman in Colorado? It just didn't work out that way. As the short interview went on, Chris began tripping over his words, stammering, seeming to grow increasingly uncomfortable. The reporter asked Chris if he had gotten into an argument with Shannon. He said, "Eh, it wasn't an argument. It was an emotional conversation. I'll leave it at that. I just want them back. Them. I just want them back. Chris let out a small laugh after this statement. The whole thing was at best awkward, at worst a giant neon flashing sign that spelled out guilt. It certainly didn't make Chris seem like a man who was completely innocent. It was during that interview that Sandy, Frank, and Shannon's brother Frankie Jr. ultimately told me they began to wonder if the man they knew could be hiding a very dark secret. Was there a time before this that you recognized that Shannon was in danger? Never. When she was in, in uh, North Carolina visiting, we noticed he was being real cold. I mean... But still, never would have thought... But he'd, never, he'd, you know, uh, he was too nice of a guy to just do all that damage. You know? 
when she went missing, we still didn't think he did that until we saw the interview. It was like something. I knew right away because. Well, you didn't. It was six thirty in the morning when the when the Pierce pain went through my forehead and I heard Shannon's name. So that's six thirty North Carolina time, four thirty in the morning their time. So. So who else would be there? Exactly. Ultimately, even if Chris had shed the most convincing crocodile tears the world had ever seen, the walls would still have continued to close in on him. Investigators were learning more about Chris and Shannon's marriage and what was really going on behind closed doors. And it was a far different story than what Shannon had shared with her followers on Facebook. Things had been incredibly rocky between the two in the months leading up to her disappearance. When they first got married, everything seemed perfect. Chris was considered a hunk. He was the kind of guy who made women turn their heads. More than that, Shannon loved how kind Chris was. When she had struggled with her lupus flare-ups, he was right by her side. She would fall asleep on Chris, and he would hold her for hours. Now, every marriage has its ups and downs, but everyone who knew Chris and Shannon thought they had it good. It was a marriage to be envious of. Shannon had gushed in multiple photos and videos of how lucky she was to have Chris. As recently as Father's Day in June, she had posted a photo of herself cradling her pregnant belly. The caption beneath the photo, Chris, we are so incredibly blessed to have you. You do so much every day for us and take such great care of us. You were the reason I was brave enough to agree to number three. It now seems that was like more of a hope than a reality. The false glimmer of social media was masking the couple's less-than-shiny reality. In 2015, the couple had been forced to file for bankruptcy. By 2018, with Shannon's marketing job, the couple made about $91,000 a year together, but they were still $70,000 in debt and could barely stay afloat. At the time of her disappearance, their savings account had $9.51. Their joint banking account had less than $1,000. No doubt of stress. And now with a third child on the way, another mouth to feed, another tether to Shannon for Chris. Was it the financial problems? The bickering about money? fighting on how to stretch it day after day? Were these the things that caused the tension between them? Whatever it was, the marriage took a turn for the worse that summer, and Shannon and the girls did, in fact, spend a lot of time in North Carolina. Chris was supposed to come stay with them, but he decided to stay in Colorado. He didn't seem to miss her at all. He wasn't sending sweet texts and giving her compliments. She shared her concerns with her friends, but it didn't really help, and she knew something was off. She told her friends she planned to confront Chris about it. She told him, you got to make an effort here. Told him that he needed to meet her halfway. When Chris said he was sorry, Shannon continued via text. Sometimes absence makes the heart grow fonder, and Shannon really hoped that after being apart for the summer, that maybe when they got back together, that 
things would be rekindled. But she told friends it didn't happen that way. She met him at the airport, and he was acting incredibly cold and rejected her advances when she tried to be intimate. His coldness was sudden, and it was really weighing heavily on her. Investigators discovered a wealth of evidence pointing to Shannon and Chris's problems through those text messages she had sent to trusted friends. At this point, there was no question. The flame had gone out. This was a marriage in trouble. Right before she vanished, it came time for Shannon's work trip to Arizona, and it seemed like it was coming at a good time. Maybe another chance for the couple to get some space after a tense summer. It just seemed like the man Shannon had met had become a total stranger. In a last attempt to salvage her marriage and get through to Chris, Shannon wrote Chris an emotional love letter. The opening read, My dearest Chris, I don't know where to begin. I am so lost for words. I can't even explain how hard this pain is. The last five weeks have been the hardest. I missed everything about you. I missed your morning breath, your touch, your lips, kisses. I missed holding you. I miss smelling you in the sheets. I miss talking to you in person. I miss watching you laugh and play with the kids that I love so much about you. I miss seeing you naked and on top of me, making love to me. Oh my God, I missed having you around when I felt alone and upset. I just flat out missed the hell out of you. We haven't been away from each other that long since 2012. She truly was trying to inspire him to re-engage But the reality was, Chris didn't want to fix his marriage. He didn't want to fix his life with Shannon. And the investigators were seeing this. With mounting suspicions surrounding Chris, the walls were closing in. He agreed to a lie detector test. Do you know where Shannon is now? No. Did you physically cause Shannon's disappearance? No. Are you lying about the last time you saw Shannon? No. Why would somebody who knows they're guilty agree to a test? Because when you're the only one telling your story, it goes a whole lot better. And when you're narcissistic, you are arrogant enough to believe that you can persuade just about anybody of just about anything. And he had convinced himself that he was so righteous, that he was so smooth, so suave, that he could pull it off. That's how narcissistic and self-absorbed he was. But of course... As I said, your story goes a lot better when you're the only one telling it. When people start doing an interview and then asking the hard questions, it's real hard to control the involuntary responses of your body. And he failed a polygraph. And what's more, the police knew about a steamy secret affair. They were ready and waiting to confront Chris. 
Only then did Chris finally admit to what he did. He asked for his father to enter the room, and he confessed Shannon and his children would never be found alive because he had killed them. On August 16th, two days after Shannon and her two daughters had first been reported missing, a drone flew over Chris Watts' oil site. From the air, the drone showed what appeared to be freshly disturbed earth. Shannon Watts was found buried, her decomposing body curled up and shoved into the ground. In nearby oil tanks, the bodies of four-year-old Bella and her little sister, three-year-old Celeste, were discovered. Shannon had been strangled, her daughter suffocated. These were brutal murders, committed without mercy. The kind of murder where the killer can see the life slowly slipping away. Police might have learned Chris was the killer, but this story was far from over. Why had Chris done this? What else was he hiding? What would he say was his motive? What was the actual timeline of these murders? Every news station covered this unthinkable crime. It was a story that would continue to evolve and change based on Chris's lies and half-truth. A familiacide so brutal the nation just couldn't wrap their heads around it. Just when we thought we knew how horrific this could possibly get, another fact would emerge. When I heard this grandmother tell me, that they couldn't get an airline to agree to fly those two little girls' bodies back to North Carolina because they were so oil-soaked that there was a risk of them spontaneously combusting and bursting into flames. It just took my breath away. And I thought, this can't get any more horrific. I was wrong. On the next episode, we will play Chris's chilling admission for you. He led police to the bodies, but was he still lying about what really happened, and was his mistress the motive for this crime? He claimed something else entirely had triggered him, and in a shocking twist, he blamed Shannon for the deaths. We'll explore Chris's affair. Who was his mistress? What exactly did she know about the crime? We'll hear what she had to say. And I'll tell you how it paralleled the Scott Peterson case. That's all next on The Devil Beside Me, the Chris Watts story. You had to deal with family dysfunctions at all kinds of levels. In fact, today on Dr. Phil. I'm talking to Lindsay Chrisley, and this is the daughter from Chrisley Knows Best, and we're talking about allegations of lies and extortion and a secret meeting with her dad. I mean, there's allegations of a sex tape and all sorts of dysfunction in this family. Thank God it doesn't involve murder, but it sure involves some broken hearts. You'll see what I mean today on Dr. Phil. I hope you tune in. 